Today's teaching text is Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. So I'm just going to apologize in advance if it gets, if I get a little sweaty up here. Uh, I got the tissues, so that's the best I can do. Uh, but that's all we'll say about that. Uh, I digress quickly, and I don't usually uh, go off script. So um, thankfully, I didn't say anything too crazy. But uh, but you, congratulations! You made it. You made it through another holiday season, right? Another crazy holiday season where you have to interact with people and have weird, awkward conversations. And, and you made it. You made it back. So, so I'm grateful. Um, I don't know if, if any of you are like this, but I sort of look back on the last couple of weeks of the holiday and just try to figure out what happened. Like, where did it go? It was sort of a blur. And, and for us, that's, that's sort of the way it goes. We take our whole family back to Ohio, uh, which is where we're from. And, uh, and then we just sort of parade the children around from house to house because we all have uh, all these family members there and they all want to see us and so and so we go from house to house and and I love it um, you know well, I should say my kids love it because from house to house they get presents right uh, but I love it because I go from house to house and I get food uh, so it used to be for me it used to be for you know I was all about the presents but uh, but now in my older age, it's all about the foods and the desserts and the cookies and the special coffees. 
And so I don't know if this describes any of you, but uh, I am what we call a classic holiday grazer. Any, any grazers out there? Yeah, I'm a big fan of grazers. So if you invite me over to your house, especially for the holiday, uh, and you put together a nice spread of food, a charcuterie board perhaps, just a suggestion if you do end up inviting me over, I can almost guarantee that this is what will happen. Uh, almost instinctually, but, but definitely strategically, I'm going to set myself up in a position where I don't have to move but an inch or so to be able to access all the food on the table because I want to sit there and graze and I want to talk and I want to graze and I want to talk and I want to be able to grab a handful of chips and I want to be able to grab a cookie and, and a few crackers and cheese and, and then some candied almonds and then a coffee to refill, you know, so I can dunk my cookie. You know, it's, and it's not an exaggeration to say that I can talk for hours and I can talk and eat and talk and eat for hours without really ever recognizing what I'm doing. And so oftentimes, this is kind of how it, how it works in these contexts for me. So, so I'll eat and eat and eat while I'm talking and talking and talking. And then Jennifer or one of the girls will start to realize how much I've consumed. And then they'll just maybe gently encourage me to, to, to maybe take a break, to maybe move away from the table, uh, which will then cause me to get defensive uh, and say, no, no, I just, I just had one thing. That's all I had was just one thing, which, of course, will be enough, just enough for me to convince my brain that, that I have justification for just one more cookie and, and then one more cracker and a huge chunk of cheese and some salami and, and will ultimately resort, resort in me complaining at the end of the night as we're driving home to Jennifer that my stomach hurts. That's the, that's the, the vicious cycle for me. And, and it so often ends not, you know, uh, not in heartache, but in stomach ache. Dad, dad joke guys out there, that's for you. You're welcome. Uh, it, it often ends in stomach ache. And, and in my wiser moments, when I'm actually stepped away from the table and I've listened to my better half, I recognize that I have a self-control problem. Now, I recognize that I need to put a cap on the cookie consumption. But when the chips and the guacamole are just inches away from my reach... I often find I prefer to live in this sort of state of denial. You know, this, this, I prefer to see myself not as someone who has a food addiction, but someone who is a, who's a foodie, right? That's much more palatable to all of us. Uh, any other foodies in here? Yeah, it's okay, you know, uh, uh, your secret's safe with me. Um, Oh, if you're not familiar, you know, if you're familiar with this sort of propensity, though, uh, I think that you're going to love the story that we're going to look at this morning. It's a story all about someone ignoring who they really are. It's about someone not being honest with himself. And so, if you have your Bible, we're going to look at, at the chapter that uh, that we just read, the story that we just read this morning. Uh, and and this morning, we're going to look at this story that takes place uh, really around a table uh, during a meal that Jesus has with a Pharisee. And it's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, which we just read. And in this story, Jesus is really going to go to great lengths to help this Pharisee see himself as he really is. He's going to try to help him see something about himself that if he doesn't discover, then he'll never really be able to see and embrace Jesus as he truly is. And I think what we're going to discover is that this Pharisee isn't being honest with himself. He's blinded. He's, he's lacking true awareness of who he really is. And I think as we walk through this story together, what we're going to also see is that we struggle with the same thing. So often we struggle to see ourselves as we truly are, and the danger for us is the same as it was for the Pharisee. If we don't see ourselves 
as we truly are, then we'll never respond to Jesus as we truly should. So let's read again uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. But before we jump in, let me just pray for us real quick. God, thank you for this opportunity to come uh, into your word and to hear it and to think about it. I pray for our time this morning. God, would you encourage us? I pray for our time this morning. God, would you remind us of your grace? God, would you, would you free us this morning from the burden of feeling like we have to, to earn our way to you? We have to, to impress you. God, would you give us the ability to see ourselves as we truly are and respond to you as we truly should this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll pick up again, starting in verse 36 of, of chapter 7 in Luke. He says, uh, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this dinner conversation, and as we explore it together, Jesus is really, like I said, going to help this Pharisee discover his true self by leveraging three tools. He's going to use a disruption uh, that's really serving as a demonstration. He's going to use a parable, and he's going to use a contrast. And so let's walk through the story together, and it really begins with an invitation. So Jesus has been traveling around, speaking in synagogues, healing the sick, performing miracles calling his disciples in, and beginning to reveal himself as the Messiah. And after a time of preaching in this local synagogue, <coughs> excuse me, Luke tells us that a Pharisee invites Jesus over for a meal. And we don't really know what prompted the invitation. It was certainly customary and often considered a noble act for someone to invite a traveling rabbi to dine at their house. 
It's possible that the Pharisee was intrigued or, or had a reputation for mingling with some of the famous religious elite. It's even possible that he wondered if this truly was someone sent from God. And so although we don't really know what motivated him, we do know that he was kind of a lousy host. And if you were invited to someone's house in this context, the general cultural expectation was that you would greet the guest with a kiss of peace, that you would either have your servant remove their sandals and, and wash their feet, or you would provide water for them to wash their own feet so they could enjoy their meal without dusty feet, right, without, without all the dust on their feet, and, and you would give them some olive oil to anoint their head with oil as a means of refreshment. And that's what it looked like to be a good host. And as the Pharisee hosts Jesus, he, he doesn't appear to extend anything close to this sort of hospitali hospitality towards him. If the meal were happening in our day, it would be like Jesus coming to the door and no one taking his coat, so he's left awkwardly to figure out what to do with it. Or instead of greeting him at the door, it would be like just kind of waving him in, you know, just without really making any eye contact or any formal greeting, just hoping he finds a seat. And so I wonder if any of you ever been to someone's house and just wondered, like, does this person really want me here? And that's what's going on with Jesus and this Pharisee. There's this, there's this subtle and, and not-so-subtle rudeness happening. And if I were Jesus, uh, and I think you probably all know this about me at this point, if I were Jesus, if I were the Savior of the world who had humbled himself and, and come down into this world full of people who snubbed me, I would very likely put this little Pharisee in his place. I'd probably do something offensive, like uh, miraculously create a basin full of water and slowly just wash my feet in front of him while I, with a little slight grin on my face. Uh, or maybe I would uh, use my power to have the container of oil, oil magically appear in my hand, right? I'd do something, you know, something supernatural. But whatever I do, I guarantee you it would be dramatic and it would be in your face, because that's how I roll. But Jesus is always so much more gracious than me. He never abuses his power or, or uses it for his own good to exalt himself because that's the kind of God that he is. He's all-powerful, but he's also humble. So instead, Jesus ignores these slights, and we're told that he reclines at the table. And so rather than allowing his, his host rudeness to get under his skin or, or to make him lose his temper, he instead uses it as an opportunity to help this Pharisee get a clearer picture of who he really is and see something really crucial about himself. And he does so first by embracing a disruption that's really a demonstration of something incredible. And in this context, like I said, meals were, were usually shared around a U-shaped table <clears throat> that had low-lying couches on which you would lay and so you would, uh, you'd stretch yourself out on uh, your left elbow, and then you would use your right hand to eat. And when I think about it, it really, I really think we're sort of doing it all wrong, right, as we eat. I mean, they're, they're laying down, you know, one elbow here, one arm. I'm talking, that's, that's a better scenario than, than some of the dining tables that I've been sitting around <laughs> over the last few weeks. Um, I digress, gosh. Um, but that's, uh, that's how a formal meal would take place. And often the first part of the meal uh, was the reclining and the eating. And then the second part would involve more formal conversation or instruction. And that's formal conversation that, that, that the uninvited guests would be interested in overhearing. So you would have people there. You would have them eating. You would have them sharing the meal, reclining, relaxing. Then you would have a time of conversation. And then you would have 
a group of other people behind them listening in. And so while Jesus is stretched out around the table, and while there are probably quite a few others gathered around to listen in, Luke tells us that there was a pretty dramatic disruption. Verses 37 and 38, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he had recli- was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster gla- flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And so as Jesus is dining and being disrespected, someone from the crowd suddenly comes close to him and begins not just to greet him like he should have been greeted, but goes above and beyond. And this is kind of where the story gets really interesting, because the person who's performing this greeting is someone who normally doesn't show up to these sorts of gatherings. He writes, and behold, a woman from the city who was a sinner. If he, had, uh, if he had been in the audience, this certainly would have been something to behold because this woman who is simply characterized here as a sinner likely has a reputation. She's an outcast. She's someone who likely was a prostitute. And she shows up at this dinner, and I'm, and I'm sure even when she just walked in, it made everyone feel uncomfortable. Do you know anyone like that? Someone, when they walk into the room, everyone looks. Everyone gets a little bit more alert. Luke says she's a sinner. She's been labeled. She's notorious. And so everyone in the community looked down on her in disgust. But it's not just her presence that's bothersome, it's also how she behaves. Most scholars believe that she must have already had some sort of deep encounter with Jesus and his offer of grace and forgiveness during one of his other teaching times or or while he was performing one of his other miracles, and he'd likely shown her kindness and the deep love that he had for her regardless of her past. She'd probably never felt accepted by any man until she met Jesus. And so when she heard he was going to be at this Pharisee's house, she musters up as much courage as she can, and she goes in to watch and listen. But as she's observing and noticing how Jesus is being so disrespected, she's overwhelmed with emotion, and she decides, if the Pharisee isn't going to wash Jesus' feet, then I'll do it. And so she interrupts the meal, something that would have been very inappropriate, And she begins to wash his feet. And then as she begins to wash, her heart continues to flood with gratitude, I imagine, and she thinks about how this man has changed her life. And so she begins to cry, and the water is beginning to to cause more of a mess. And because she doesn't have a towel, she uses what she has, her hair. And I imagine she's frantically trying to clean his feet, and then the tears are causing the dirt to turn to mud, and it's making his feet dirtier, and so she panics, and and she does something that at this time was culturally very inappropriate. She lets down her hair, and she wipes his feet. If she were doing this in our community, it would have been similar to if she had just come in and taken off her shirt during a meal to wash her feet. It would have been viewed as a seductive act. But because her heart is so full, she continues cleaning his feet, and instead of simply giving him the kiss of peace, in humility, she kisses not his head, but his feet. 
And she pulls out her alabaster jar and, and doesn't just anoint his head, but instead anoints his feet with her expensive perfume. This woman is pouring out her heart to Jesus because she's been overwhelmed by his grace and offer of forgiveness. You see, she knows something about herself. She knows that she is as bad as everyone says. She knows she's a sinner, and so when she was in the crowd, probably at one of the gatherings where Jesus was teaching and extending his message of forgiveness, she was overwhelmed with love and gratitude, and this deep love and gratitude has now worked itself out in this dramatic display of affection. This disruption is a demonstration of how we all ought to respond to him. Friends, when is the last time your heart was overwhelmed with love and gratitude to Jesus because of the grace and forgiveness he's extended to you? This sort of dramatic display ought to resonate with all of those who call ourselves forgiven. You know, if she had done this to anyone else in the room, they would have pulled back immediately or scolded her or, or cast her out. I wonder how you would respond if a prostitute came over to you at a restaurant while you were eating and gave you this sort of greeting. How do you think everyone else at the restaurant would respond? We don't really know how, exactly how Jesus responds other than not doing what we think most people would, which is to recoil. But we do know how this Pharisee responds. He doesn't verbalize anything, of course, but Luke tells us what was going through his mind in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who or what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You can hear the disdain in his voice. He should have known who and what kind of woman she is who's touching him. He's clearly not even a prophet from God. And it's in this response, I think, that we begin to see what it is that he's been missing about himself. What it is that Jesus is hoping to help him discover. He's in a position where he's built up a lot of credibility. He works hard. He's probably admired for his success. He's achieved so much in his life, and, and he's kept so many rules and regulations. He's distinguished himself. He's probably memorized large portions of Scripture, and, and you know he's a tither, right? When people look at him, they probably say something like, that Pharisee, you know, he, he's a decent man. And he knows that everyone knows that he is just such a great guy. He's a righteous dude. And so when he looks at this woman, he's fooled into believing that he's superior, that he's above this kind of life, that he's more righteous friends, he's only being fooled. At his core, he really is no better than she is. Friends, I wonder when you look at other people whose life is a mess, what do you see? How does that make you feel? If you're like me, the temptation is to feel proud or, or thankful that I'm not like that woman. But that's such a dangerous place to be. 
When we start acting as the judge of who is good and and who is bad, we're in danger of minimizing our own mess, of missing out on what our souls really need. You see, we have this tendency, don't we, to to minimize our mess? When we minimize it, we we miss out on being able to truly experience and, and appropriately respond to the grace and forgiveness God has extended to us through Jesus. Instead of seeing ourselves in this woman, we often focus on how we're different, on how we're better. But Jesus won't let this Pharisee, and he won't let us get away with this sort of thinking. Instead, he wants to help us see ourselves as we truly are so we can respond to him as we truly should. And that's why, after this amazing disruption, a disruption that's really a demonstration that shows us exactly how we ought to view ourselves and how we ought to respond to God's grace and forgiveness in our lives, after he does all that, he continues by sharing a parable. And we see that starting in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So into this very awkward scene where everyone appears to be very uncomfortable, Jesus finally breaks the silence by calling this Pharisee by his name, Simon, and saying that he'd like to tell him something, something that clearly relates to what Simon and and likely everyone else has been thinking. And he tells him this story about two debtors. And I think if we're not careful, I think we can get confused by what he's trying to communicate. So both of these debtors owe this moneylender a substantial amount of money. One would be the equivalent of a few months' work, and the other would be the equivalent of almost two years. And so while on paper, one is a little less than the other, they both are in a position of inability to pay. It's very likely that neither of them will really ever in their lifetime be able to pay this moneylender back. And so while there's a degree of difference, the reality is is that they're both equally bankrupt. They're both in the same position. And so after telling him this story, Jesus goes on to ask Simon a question. Which of them will love him more? Of these two forgiven debtors, which one will have a deeper affection for him? That's an interesting question, isn't it? And you have to appreciate Simon's response. He tries to be as non-committal as possible. He says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. You know, he's trying to make sure he doesn't accidentally get caught up in some sort of trick of Jesus, like Jesus is known to do. He, he's doing what, what my youngest daughter does when she plays Connect Four, and she's, she's not sure that, you know, what she's doing with that next piece, so she sort of puts it in halfway. It's like a half commit, you know, and, and she's trying to, like, judge my face to see how am I going to, like, is my face going to lead her to, to, to know if this is the, the move that's going to get her to lose the game. But Jesus' reaction is favorable. He affirms his answer. He says, You have judged rightly. And at first glance, I think we might conclude that what Jesus is trying to communicate in this story is that in actuality, this woman's sins are much greater than Simon's sins. So that's why her love for her, him, seems to be so much greater. You know, she's been forgiven a lot more. So, you know, therefore she has a lot more 
affection. You know, she has a mess and, and, and uh, she's a mess and has done God knows what. And innocent little Simon over here, you know, he, he really only needs a little bit of forgiveness to sort of top him off and make him right with God. But, but is that what Jesus is saying? Is he trying to get him to see that it's just harder for Simon to love him because Simon's only made a few mistakes and, and only needs a few boxes of forgiveness, while this other woman over here, she needs a whole warehouse of forgiveness? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Instead, Jesus seems to be saying someone's perception of the gravity of their debt has a direct correlation to how deeply they appreciate their forgiveness. If you perceive your debt to be small, then you probably won't, you probably won't think having it forgiven is really that big of a deal, right? If the perception of your debt is great, though, if your perception is that you're hopeless, then your heart will overflow with love and gratitude when you've been forgiven. Simon is blinded by his decency. He's fooled by his man-made categories of who's considered righteous and who's considered a sinner. He's foolishly categorized people into those who are righteous and, and those who are sinful, but Simon is dead wrong. Why? Well, we know from Scripture that there is no one righteous. No, not one. His sins are just as bad as this woman's, even though they aren't as visible. But Simon doesn't see it that way. He's still clinging to his decency. Even though he can judge rightly the scenario of Jesus' story when he looks at this woman, when he looks at her, he sees a sinner. But what does he see when he looks at himself? Friends, what is it that you see when you look at yourself? Do you see yourself as a little sinner? as a little messed up, or as the chief of sinners. The only way you'll truly ever appreciate the forgiveness that you have in Jesus is by coming to the realization that you are a mess, that you are a lot more sinful than you realize. Friends, pray that God would continue to reveal to you and awaken your heart and your mind to just how broken that you really are. Well, just in case Simon misses the subtlety of the parable and, and still hasn't been able to grasp what he's trying to reveal to him, Jesus goes on to ask a startling question and then contrasts Simon's behavior with this woman's. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? He urges Simon to do something he's probably been avoiding during the entire encounter. He asks whether he sees her. What a startling question. We know Simon sees her sin. We know he sees all the bad stuff about her. But what Simon is missing is that this woman is so much more. She's a sinner, but she's also made in the image of God. She's messed up, but she's also been transformed by grace. She's come to the end of herself and she's falling at the feet of Jesus and she's embracing the forgiveness that only he can give. Simon, do you see her? Do you see why what she's demonstrating before your very eyes? 
You know, there are so many Simons in this world, but friends, if you see yourself like this woman saw herself, and if your past is marked by your mess, I just want to encourage you. The Simons of this world, they may not see you, but Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. He knows your true heart, just like he saw this woman. Jesus sees this woman, and Jesus also sees Simon's hearts and thoughts, too. And this is why he continues by contrasting Simon's rude behavior with this woman. Verse 44 again. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon sees himself as so much more righteous than this woman, yet Jesus says, hold on a second. Let's consider this dinner that you're hosting. You've been rude and inconsiderate. She's gone above and beyond. Simon, you aren't more righteous than her. You're less. Simon, if you're honest with yourself, you believe that you don't actually need to be forgiven. You think you've achieved favor with God on your own. Simon, your problem is that you think if push comes to shove, you suppose you might need a little forgiveness. Simon's fallen into the trap of thinking of himself more highly than he ought, and it's blinding him to who he truly is and what he truly needs. Friends, we're all guilty of this. We get into a Christian community like this. We begin to work hard for Jesus. We, we clean ourselves up. We, we make good decisions, and our hearts begin to forget or lose sight of just how bad we really are. And when we forget when we lose sight of our true selves and we begin to devalue the gospel, it becomes more and more challenging to really love and appreciate what Jesus has done and what he's doing. So friends, this morning I wonder, have you lost sight of it? I know it's often a scary and disturbing thing to consider. We don't want to dwell on the negative. We want to try to, to, to move on from our sin. But if we grasp and remember and think about and, and really know who we are, if we, if we don't get there, if we, if we don't understand that, then we'll never be able to fully grasp the love that Jesus has for us. He loves you, friends. Not the pretend you. Not the one who puts on a bunch of spiritual makeup. He loves the real you with all of your imperfections. And when you see that, it will light up your soul. It will stir you to express yourself to God in a way similar to how this woman did. And one of the things I love about this story is how it ends. We hear how it ends for the crowd. They're left in awe, right? They wonder, who is this who even forgives sins? 
And we know how it ends for the woman. Jesus affirms her publicly and affirms her faith and affirms that she's been forgiven. But we're left in silence for how it ends for Simon the Pharisee. Did the blinders on his eyes finally come off? Did he finally get honest with himself about who he truly is? Did God finally awaken him to see that just like all of us, he's in desperate need of forgiveness? Or did he remain committed to this idea that he was a decent man? That he wasn't perfect, but at least he's a little bit better than those sinners. Friends, I wonder this morning how this story ends for you. I would just ask I would just ask you, just like Jesus asked Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her in you? I pray that you'll give up this false thinking that we are good enough. I pray that God will awaken all of us each day to what and how and where we fall short of his expectations. And as we come to this realization, I pray that it would cause us all to cling to Jesus and to sing to Jesus and to praise and worship him with full hearts for the, for the, for the forgiveness that he's extended to us in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you don't leave us where we are, that you awaken our souls. I pray for those this morning who are here. I pray that you would help them see themselves as they truly are, I pray that you would give them that gift and I pray that they would respond to you as they truly should. In Jesus' name, amen.